Now, folks, when we think of stewardship, we tend to think of our finances, don't we? We sort of get locked in there, or we might think of our talents or our gifts, and all of that is good. We've covered a lot of that in the previous four weeks. But we also have to think in terms of our time. Every one of us has a finite amount of time on this earth. We live, we serve, we die. And so that means that believers need to prioritize their time and use it wisely for the Lord. How much of our time belongs to the Lord? All of it. Well, what should have priority in our time management? God should. And the work of the Lord. Now, I think we would all agree we're busy people. We've got to juggle work and, and family and church and just any sort of number of responsibilities that we have. Uh, I read a few years ago a piece in the paper, all these tools that we have at our disposal today. Um, all the electronic gadgets, the internet, all these things that are supposed to help us use time more wisely have only done what? Taken up more and more of our time. Just think a minute about how you spend your day. Think a minute about the time you spend eating, sleeping, Commuting back and forth to work, in Bible study, family time, and some sort of ministry in the church. Think about the number of hours in each day you devote to all of the above. Now folks, we are accountable to God for how we use it all. Now, in this section, of course, we're going to zero in on, on verse 16. But uh, verse 16 comes within that context. You, you see there, beginning in verse 15, Paul's talking about walking wisely. The use of time fitting within that context uh, of a wise person and how he conducts himself. And so I want us to kind of key in on that, that wisdom principle, too, in using our time. And so the first thing I want you to see with me tonight is walking in wisdom demands walking carefully. Walking carefully. From verse 15 of Ephesians chapter 5. Now, if you've got the King James Version, look at verse 15. It says, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. Now, the word circumspectly comes from two Latin words, circum and spectrum. Circum means around and spectrum means to look. And so we are to walk looking around. What's he trying to say to us there? Pay attention. Pay attention how you're living your life. Give some care. Give some thought to it. Walk looking around. Walk carefully. Walk wisely. 
The word carries the meaning of examining how we live so that we would live very precisely, accurately, and purposefully. I read one time about a story about a dad, a snowstorm had happened, and he turned around to see his little boy uh, trying to jump from one of his dad's footprints to the other. And he said, son, you need to go back in the house. You don't have snow boots on or anything. It's cold out here. What are you trying to do? He said, dad, I'm trying to follow in your footsteps. That dad said it made him stop and pause and think, how am I living my life? How am I living my life? Butch, we've got others that have come in. Who, who needs Anybody else? Somebody else back here came in, didn't they? Anyway, he just he said it made him stop and consider the way he was living. We need to be careful how we walk. We need to walk circumspectly. Folks, life is too precious to not think about how we're living. We need to be careful how we're living. We need to take thought in a positive way. Now, Jesus on one occasion cautioned us about not taking thought in a negative way. Remember that, Matthew 6. Don't be anxious about your life, what you shall eat or drink or put on. And he gave the analogy, you know, the birds, the birds of the air, how God takes care of them, the lilies of the field. And what was the principle there in Matthew chapter uh, 6? That if God takes care of the greater thing, which is life itself, he's given you life, don't you think he'll take care of the lesser things of life, i.e. the provision you need? It's an argument that goes from the greater to the lesser. If God takes care of the greater, then he'll also take care of the lesser. And so Jesus is saying there, there are some things you don't need to take thought of. You don't need to be anxious about your life in the negative regard of worrying. But what Paul is talking about here, we do need to take careful thought in a positive way because we need to understand that life is a gift. How are we using this gift? I like the way the New English, uh, New English Bible translates verse 15. It says, don't live as simpletons. Don't live as simpletons. Wise people pay attention to their time. First of all, notice uh, about this. Be careful not to walk in foolishness. Look back at what he's been saying there in verse 11. Uh, he says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, old sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Now, we think of someone being foolish who doesn't express a lot of intelligence. You know, maybe you scored real low on your SATs. Or maybe you celebrated the fact that you just, you made it through school with a 70 if 69 was failing. And man, you're just happy you made a 70. 
And, you know, we, we try to think in turn, well, maybe that's not the smartest person. But the Bible looks at foolishness a little different way. The Bible emphasizes that it, uh, the, the real fool is the person who tries to live his life apart from God. You don't have to be an atheist. A lot of Christians sadly live as practical atheists, don't they? I mean, if you put their life right up against the atheist, the professing atheist, not a whole lot of difference. Paul says here that as Christians, we're not to be foolish. We're not to walk like those around us in the culture. In fact, look back at Ephesians 4 beginning in verse 17 with me. He says there, this I say therefore and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them because of the hardness of their heart. And they having become callous have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. A lost man can be highly educated. You can be brilliant in the ways of the world. But nonetheless, he's living his life without any thought of God or any thought of eternity. He's living his life as a fool. That man in Luke 12, that story Jesus told, who said, I know what I'll do. You know, i got a crisis on my hands now. I've got so much. It's been such a good year in farming, he said. I've got a bumper crop, and boy, my barns and all, my stalls and barns, don't even, they're not even big enough to contain everything I've got. I'll tear all that down, build bigger, and say, soul, you've got it made. Eat, drink, and be merry. And Jesus said, thou fool, this very night thy soul shall be required of thee. And so we need to be careful that we're not walking in foolishness. In verse 15 he points out that we need to be careful that we're walking in wisdom, God's wisdom. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise. Now, there's two kinds of wisdom the Bible speaks of. There's the wisdom from above and the wisdom from below. The wisdom from below is what we would call worldly wisdom. Now, the world admires and respects worldly wisdom or earthly wisdom. The world respects somebody who has that ability to get ahead in the world. Worldly wisdom. We'll see in a minute how James talks about that in James chapter 3. Take an example of this. Before going to Europe on business, a certain man drove his Rolls Royce to a downtown New York City bank and went in to ask for an immediate loan of $5,000. Now the loan officer taken back by this request requested some collateral. The man said, well, all I've got on me right now is the keys to my Rolls Royce here. And took his keys out and handed the keys to the banker. Well, the banker immediately had somebody 
drive the Rolls Royce into the bank's parking garage and lock it away safely. Two weeks later, the man walked through the bank's doors and asked to settle up his loan, get his car back. That'll be $5,000 in principal and $15.40 in interest, the loan officer said. The man, the rich man, got his checkbook out, road check, paid off the loan, walked away. Loan officer said, wait a minute, sir, can I ask you a question? It's really none of my business, but as you were gone, we, uh, when you left, we were processing all your paperwork for this loan for $5,000. Looking at your accounts, you are an insanely wealthy man. Why would somebody with your resources want a loan from my bank? For $5,000. The man smiled and said, Son, where else could I safely park my Rolls Royce in Manhattan for two weeks for only $15.40? We hear something. No, no, didn't make that up. We hear something like that and we think, you know, you you got to admire somebody with those kind of smarts. But that's worldly wisdom. James talks about that in James chapter 3, 13. He says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not be boast and false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of, of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So there's the wisdom from below, wisdom from above. The Bible emphasizes having the wisdom from above. You know, the first third of the book of Proverbs personifies wisdom standing in the streets and calling to people to come to her and seek her. Now, how does wisdom express itself in a Christian's life? By the way we walk, charting a wise path, a careful path for ourselves and our family. Folks, that's not going to just happen. And so in this stewardship of our life, stewardship of our time, he's just saying make sure, walk circumspectly, carefully, looking around at how you're walking. How are you trading a day of your life? Well, secondly, he points out that walking in wisdom demands taking special care as to how you use your time. Look at verse 16. Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Now, it is almost impossible to overestimate history in the Bible. Now, listen to me carefully here for next few minutes the Christian faith is a is an historical faith 
Now, in the context of the people of the Bible, why is that so important to remember? Think about a lot of the pagans and pagan religions around Israel. Hmm? Right? Their view, a lot that they had nature religions, and in some of those religions, the view of history was what? Think also of Greek philosophy. What was the view of history? Cyclical. And history, where in Christianity it's linear. History is his story. It's going somewhere. But in the Old Testament, a lot of the people, the pagans, their view of history was cyclical. Nature, religions, and so forth. You get to the New Testament and you find the same thing in a lot of the Greek philosophies. And then you also have the impact of Eastern religions. History's meaningless. It's cyclical. You live, you die, you come back as something else. Start all over again. That's how many peoples in Old Testament and New Testament times viewed history, viewed time. Meaningless. The Bible nowhere views history or time that way. It's going somewhere. It's headed somewhere. And in this history, time, linear, uh, time, and what does Galatians 4, 4 say? In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born of a virgin, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law. History has Meaning. When God called Abraham, he made him a promise that would be fulfilled in history. The incarnation of Jesus Christ was the decisive point in God's intervention in human history. Today we look back to the cross and then we look forward to that time when God wraps up time as we know it and creates the new heavens and the new earth. And so time in biblical way of thinking, of think, biblical way of thinking, time means a great deal. What Patrick Henry say about life? Does anybody remember that famous quote by Patrick Henry? I regret, I'll help you out, that I have... But one life to give for my country. A Christian ought to live with the attitude, I regret that I have just one life to give for my Lord. A few years after the end of World War II, an English historian named Herbert Butterfield, he wrote a book in which he tried to set the past in perspective and rally Christians to significant ethical behavior. And... He focused on the biblical perceptions of time. He said, and I quote, It's always been realized in the main tradition of Christianity that if the Word was made flesh, matter can never be regarded as evil in itself. 
In a similar way, if one moment of time could hold so much as this, then you cannot brush time away and say that any moment of it is mere vanity. Every instant of time becomes more momentous than ever. Every instant is eschatological. Or as one person has put it, like the point in the fairy tale where the clock is just about to strike 12. He goes on to say, On this view there can be no case of an absentee God leaving mankind at the mercy of chance in a universe blind, a real drama, not a madman's nightmare, is being enacted on the stage of human history. A real conflict between good and evil is taking place. Events do matter. And something is being achieved irrespective of our apparent success or failure. Time matters. History matters. Looking at life, every moment of life, that eschatological moment. Before the night's over, that trumpet might sound. And the dead in Christ rise first. Now, going back to that passage we read initially, Ecclesiastes 3 and 12, Ecclesiastes 12, Solomon kept busy ruling his own kingdom, but sometimes those demands made him feel as though his efforts were futile. Now, being a smart man, Solomon searched for the meaning of life. And then he recorded his experiences and conclusions, and we find many of those in the book of Ecclesiastes. And look at that passage that we read in chapter 3. And how the, the, what he's saying there about time. There's time first of all for what in verse 2? A time to be what? Born. God has a schedule for every person's life. It begins with birth. We're not born by accident. We're born by God's design. Jot down Psalm 139. Read Psalm 139 later tonight. David's testimony about his life and how he, was, he knew he was fearfully and wonderfully made. And notice what he says in that psalm about God before I even lived one of my days. You had them all numbered. And then what God tell Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 1. Jeremiah, before I formed you in your mother's womb, I knew you. And I consecrated you to be a prophet to the nations. To pull down and to build up. God has a plan for our lives. Think about this. God has a plan for your life even before you enter the world. Well, secondly, as Paul's saying here in Ephesians 5, there's a time of opportunity. Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Now, Paul's making an assumption here. He's making an assumption that he's writing to people who are wise or at least desire to be wise. And he's emphasizing that our walk must no longer be according to the world, the flesh, and the devil... 
Our walk must no longer be like the pagan. We read about that in chapter 4 a moment ago. Instead, we must walk worthy of our calling, Ephesians 4.1. We must walk in love, Ephesians 5.1. We must walk in the light, Ephesians 5.8. And in so doing, we must redeem the time. Now, Paul's reminding us that we all have the same amount of time at our disposal. None of us can stretch time. But wise Christians know how to use time for the glory of God. Somebody once advertised, lost yesterday, somewhere between sunrise and sunset, two golden hours, each set with 60 diamond minutes, no reward offered, for they are gone forever. Jonathan Edwards wrote in his journal just just before he turned 20, resolved never to lose one moment of time, but to improve it in the most profitable way that I possibly can. A 20-year-old resolved not not to lose one moment of time, but to use it in the most profitable way that I can to the glory of God. Now, look at that phrase in verse 16. Some translations say making the most or redeeming. Now, that word redeem is a word that literally came out of the marketplace back then. It's the principle of something that's on sale and you're taking advantage of the sale. You're buying it up. Paul's saying that's what we're to do for the Lord Jesus with our time. We buy it up because time is precious and opportunities are fleeting. As I said before, life is a gift from God. Every day is a gift from God. In Lamentations 3 it says, The Lord's loving kindness indeed never cease. His compassions never fail They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. In light of God's mercies. In light of God's grace. In light of where you've come from in your life. Think of all the days, the weeks, the months, the years. That you and I both wasted. All that time that we wasted when we were unregenerate. And now as Christians, we need to understand. We need to buy back some of that time. We need to use time wisely for the Lord. And when he uses the word time here, redeem the time, does anybody know, I know you've heard this before, but you may not know the word, but do you know the word that he's using there for time? Kairos. Now, George, do you remember what was the other word for time? Kronos. Now, what's Kronos time? Calendar time, right? And the time on my watch right now, and your watch, and the time on our calendar. Kronos time. Today's Sunday, November the 10th. 2013, Kronos time. Now, George, what is Kairos time, though? Okay. 
It's that special moment of opportunity, right? Those kairos moments within chronos time. Those moments of opportunity within calendar time. Maybe one of you in here tonight, maybe yesterday something was going on in your family. Chronos time yesterday, you were clicking on doing this, that, or the other. And there was, there was a special moment that you had with one of your loved ones. Or a special opportunity. Maybe this past week, something like that happened. Maybe somebody in here last week, within calendar time of last week, Chronos time, maybe you got a new job offer. And it was that moment of opportunity. Kairos time. Well, that's what he's saying here that we need to redeem. Jesus said, my appointed time, my kairos, is near. Matthew 26, 18. Now, folks, what this means is that Christians are to view time differently. We are not just marking chronos time. We're to look for that kairos time within chronos time, those moments within time that we can serve God and glorify God. Why is this so important? Paul tells us here, he says, because the days are evil. If we are not careful... It's just human nature. It's the nature of the beast, so to speak. Human nature and just nature of the world to just fritter away time, right? Waste time. Just do this, that, just nothing to show for it. And you think about this evil age that we live in and all the temptations, all the things that we have today to use up our time. If we're not careful, we'll just waste away life. And he's saying in light of those moments God gives you and in light of this dark age that we live in, we need to be very cognizant of how we use our time for God. As Charles Hodge defined it, we need to rescue time from waste or abuse. Christ has redeemed us. He's rescued us from a futile, meaningless existence. And so now we have the privilege of living for the Lord. We're to make the most of history for God's glory. I'm sure y'all know the name Chuck Colson. Chuck Colson went home to be with the Lord was last year, year before. Anyway, recently. You know, he started prison fellowship, went to prison after Watergate, was converted, lived the rest of his life for God, and started prison fellowship, reaching inmates. They visited a a Mississippi uh, prison, and a prison that had lots of death row inmates. And he writes, he talked about most of the death row inmates were in their bunks, wrapped in blankets, 
staring blankly at little black and white TV screens, simply killing time. But in one cell, a man was sitting on his bunk reading. Colson said, as I approached, he looked up, showed me his book, an instruction manual on Episcopal liturgy. John Irving, on death row for more than 15 years, was studying for the priesthood. John told me he was allowed out of his cell one hour each day the rest of the time he studies. Seeing that John had nothing in his cell but a few books, I thought, God's blessed me with so much, the least I can do is provide something for this brother. Would you like a TV if I could arrange it, I asked. John smiled gratefully. Thanks, Mr. Colson, but no thanks. You can waste an awful lot of time with those things. For the 15 years since a judge placed a number on his days, John has determined not to waste one, the one commodity he had to give to the Lord, his time. One psychologist, William Marston, he surveyed 3,000 people and asked them what they were living for. 94% said they were simply enduring today to make it into tomorrow. That's sad, isn't it? How can we redeem the time? First of all, the prayer principle. Seek the mind of God each day about that particular day. Now, folks, to sit before the Lord each day and spend some time in His Word and prayer is not a waste of time. You remember that story I told you? I think it was on Wednesday night about woodchoppers. That young man, he was swinging that axe madly. And the older... um, the older guy, he thought, man, I'm going to wear him out. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show him youthfulness. I'm going to do a lot more than him. Got to the end of the day, and the older man had cut a whole lot more wood than the young man. The young man said, I don't understand, sir. You know I worked harder than you all day long. Every hour, you'd sit down for about five minutes and take a break, and I would keep working. I was swinging a lot harder and faster than you were. How in the world did you end up chopping more wood than me? And the older man said, son, perhaps you didn't notice when I was sitting down five minutes every hour to take a break, what I was doing. I was sharpening my axe. Not a waste of time to take to take some time every day to sit before the Lord and to ask for His wisdom on the events of that day. The prayer principle. Secondly, use the priority principle. What's the best way you can use your time for the Lord? Oh, if life were so simple that all the choices we made were just between good and bad things. But a lot of times it's not that, is it? It's choices between the good or the best. Jesus, who only lived to be 33 years of age, was able to bow his head and say, It is finished. He accomplished the work God gave him to do. 
Now think about it, folks. There were villages that he never visited. There were people that he never healed, people that he never spoke to. And yet Jesus was able to get to the end of his life and say, it is finished. In John 17, that high priestly prayer, he said, Father, the work that you have given me to do, I have done. Was Jesus a man of prayer and a man of priorities, right? One time when his disciples said, Lord, where are you? Where have you been, rather? Where have you been? Do you not realize that everybody is looking for you? Remember Jesus' response? Come on, gentlemen. Let's go to the next village. For this reason, I have come into the world. There were people in one area biting and clawing and scratching to get at him. He did what he was called to do there and he moved on. Priorities. And that came after that early morning devotion time in Mark 1.35 when he sat before the Lord. So prayer and priorities. You can't do everything. I can't do everything. You're just one person, finite amount of time, finite amount of opportunities that you can do. And again, a lot of times it's not a choice between good and bad, but a choice between good and better or better and best. So we need God's wisdom Prayer principle, and then prioritize. What, what's really the best opportunity of my time right now? Because I'm going to do one of these two things. And so we need, to, we need to see that the urgent can keep us from the important, the tyranny of the urgent. And we need to make sure that we're doing what's truly important. Well... Solomon says here, there's a time to be born and a time of opportunity. But what does he say last? There's a time to what? A time to die. And then what happens? Hebrews 9, 27. It is appointed unto man once to die and after this the judgment. Meaning that you and I are going to have to stand before the Lord of the universe and give an account of our lives one day. We're going to have to give an account of our time and how we used our time. That's included. And because of that, we need to, we need to really... Really walk circumspectly. Remember that prayer of Moses in Psalm 90? David didn't write all the Psalms. One of them, Psalm 90, was written by Moses. Remember what Moses said in Psalm 90? He was talking about the, the days of our years are three score and ten. If by virtue of strength, there's an extension on that. Yet our lives are made up of toil and trouble and hardships. 
And so what was his conclusion? Or what was the punchline in Psalm 90? Does anybody remember? Lord, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Exactly. Moses was reflecting there on the brevity of life. Now, there's some lessons I want to give you tonight. Lesson number one, if we're going to be good stewards of our time, we must set priorities. There's the Lord's work, Matthew 6, Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Mark 9, Jesus talked about the importance of service. That if you want to be great in God's kingdom, you've got to be a servant and the last of all. Some people are so busy with their own lives and their own agenda that they don't even have time for the Lord's work. Now, folks, that's poor time management. That's poor time management. Again, Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God. So set priorities. Number two, if we're going to be good stewards of our time, then we must observe the Lord's day. Hebrews 10.25 says, let us not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as is the habit of some. Luke 10, 38, and 30, uh, 38 to 42, that is that story about Mary and Martha. And Martha scurrying about, she was so frustrated. Mary chose time to worship and sit at the Lord's feet. And the Lord commended her. Ecclesiastes 12 that we read at the beginning today too said, Remember God in the days of your youth. So if we're going to be good stewards of our time, we need to observe the Lord's day. We need to worship. We need to set priorities. God's business first in my life. Is God's business first in your life? God's business first. And time to set aside to worship God. And then thirdly, scheduling according to one's priorities. Schedule time for worship and service. Then look at time busters in your life. Eliminate those. We've all got them. Be flexible. Evaluate how you're using each day. Submit your time to God. Seek to live your life to where, like Jesus, one day you can say, Father, what you have given me to do, I have done. Think about your use of time. Are you a faithful steward? Is God first? Are you serious about time to worship and time to serve? Are you serious enough that you will plan time for both? And then entrust everything else to Jesus as what's important and what's not important. Because you can't do everything. In the stewardship of time, 
Christ is to be Lord over our watch and over our calendar. Over our watch and over our calendar. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we waste so much time, so much time, and all of us do. Sometimes we just, we just really fritter away precious time. Lord, I think of those saints of old that have come before us that didn't have all the gadgets that we have and the TVs. and Lord, I, I think how it's just amazing Amazing what they accomplished. They didn't even have electricity. But many of the preachers of old, the volumes and volumes of theology, the volumes of sermons, the tremendous amounts of things that they accomplished for you. And Lord, it's a reminder to us with all of this stuff that we have today. It really demands that we think carefully about our time. Lord, I think it would please Satan very much if we just treaded water each day and just all this stuff in the world, if we just got so caught up in it That the years and the decades of our life click off before we even realize what's happened or where they've gone. Lord, help us to be wiser than that. Help us to redeem the time. Understanding there is a time to be born and a time to die. And sandwiched between the two, there's that time of opportunity. Lord, help us to understand the kairos moments of our lives. Lord, may we put you first. And each day, may we use the prayer principle and the priority principle just like Jesus did. Lord, may we evaluate May we make some hard decisions to cut out even some things in our life that might be good, but they're hindering us from the best. And Lord, if we're so busy about our lives that we don't have time for church or we don't have time to serve Jesus, that ought to be a red flag right there that something is desperately wrong in our use of time. So convict us of that and bring change. Lord, help us to be good stewards of this aspect that we can stand before you one day and hear those words. Well done, good and faithful servant. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.